If you have a copy of the Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11 today. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage printed in the bulletin. Uh, We continue this series through Mark, and today this really is a fork in the road of the book. Uh, From here on out, from chapter 11 to 16, it only talks about Jesus' last week of life on earth, what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It begins with the, the scenes that we read this morning, which are the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then the cleansing of the temple on Monday of Easter week, sometimes called Holy Monday. And so let's uh, begin that journey together. We're going to end the journey on Easter this year. Literally, we're going to talk about Easter on Easter as we end uh, Mark's gospel then. But we begin the journey today with this passage. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will bring it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him that Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And entering Jerusalem, he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Why is judgment so scary? It's scary to think about, it's scary to talk about, and it's definitely scary to face it, no matter what situation you're in. Uh, one of my favorite shows to watch on TV, uh, a show that I like to watch when I don't want to think about anything, is on the Food Network. It's called Beat Bobby Flay. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, Bobby Flay is a famous chef, uh, world-renowned. He's won many cooking competitions, and in this show, he has two good chefs competing against each other for a chance to beat him. And they go through each other, and then they have to face off with him. And he has to uh, cook their signature dish that they pick on the spot against them in 30 minutes. And at the very end, they bring out blind judges. Not, they're not blind, but they don't know, they don't know who cooked what. They, they can see. They're blind judges. And they review what's good and bad about both dishes, and they decide whether Bobby Flay got beaten or not. Now, one of the things I love about the show is just about every time at the very end when judgment time comes and those blind judges come out and they sit down and begin to taste the food and begin to talk about the dishes, they show Bobby Flay's face. And Bobby Flay, if you ever watch the show, is not lacking in confidence normally. He's kind of a little bit arrogant, I I would say. And yet every time, you can kind of see it, the nervousness, the twitching, the eyes darting. Because he is being brought under scrutiny. They're saying things about what he did. And it's almost like his whole life is being put on the chopping block. I identify with that a lot. One of the reasons why I like the show is it's good to see somebody that confident squirming. Because I'm the kind of person that I squirm a lot when it comes to judgment, don't you? Uh, Anytime people judge anything about me, I feel a little nervous. You know, butterflies, oh boy, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? Well, take that to the next level. What is it like to face the judgment with a capital J? The evaluation with a capital E, which the Bible says everybody will face. That's what this passage is about. Make no mistake. Uh, Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, comes as a judge, as a king who judges. He looks at the temple, and he sees that it is lacking what he's looking for, and he delivers a stinging rebuke. And yet, at the same time, this king who judges the heart also happens to be the king who saves the heart at the same time. That's what we want to see this morning. The king who sees the heart is also capable of saving the heart. Take a look at your bulletin. We'll see three things. First of all, how does the king enter in to judge? How does he enter our lives? Secondly, how does the king judge? And lastly, how does the king save? First of all, let's look at how he enters. This is so important. It's the setup of the whole story in verses 1 through 11. Uh, The famous, what's called the triumphal entry. And it is true that there is some triumph in this story. But it's also true there's something that doesn't look very much like triumph at all in the story. In fact, uh, these verses show us one common way that God works in the world. And it was commonly seen in the life of Jesus. He takes two things that don't seem to ever go together. They seem to be opposites. And he marries them together like they, you would never imagine they could go together. 
Here in the story, you have triumph, majesty, glory. Clearly, Jesus is a king, and clearly he's doing things that nobody else can do in this opening part of the story. And yet, on the same, you know, on the flip side, he's coming in on a donkey. I mean, think about it. Look at how Jesus sets up the whole scene. Verses 1 and 2 and 3. He tells the disciples to go into the village. And by the way, you're going to find a donkey. And not just a donkey. You're going to find a year old or less donkey that no one has ever ridden on. It's going to be tied up. Untie it. Somebody is going to come and ask you what you're doing. Tell them the Lord needs it and they're going to let you go and bring it to me. Now, several several of y'all in the room make your living helping people travel and make travel plans. And you know this, no matter how well you plan the itinerary as a human being, there's always the unexpected that you do not predict that comes up, right? You cannot prepare for the unpredictable. And yet notice the great power of Jesus, that he not only is prepared for the unpredictable, he predicts the unpredictable. And in a certain sense, in a really real sense, he's actually making the unpredictable a reality. He's planning his own future and telling his disciples about it. Go and get the colt. No one has ever sat on it. This is what kings did in the ancient world. Nobody else could ride the king's steed. Only the king could ride it. And here he's picking the the steed of a king, right? And yet, on the opposite side, like I said, this steed is no horse. What is it? Donkey. Burro. (laughs) Just a donkey. Not to mention, it is a colt, a foal, which means year or less. Have you ever seen a year old or less than a year old donkey? It's awkward looking. It's in middle school stage, put it that way. It's partially grown up and partially not. And you can tell, spindly little legs, even though it's really tall, it just looks like a pitiful little thing. And yet Jesus Christ chooses that as his king's steed to ride into the capital city. When he gets there, children are the ones recognizing him as the king. They're shouting. Other people, I'm sure, are there too. Not just children, but we learn from the other Gospels. This was a really large crowd of children throwing the branches on the ground, waving them around, singing the words of Psalm 18, which, 118, which we sang earlier in the service. A Hosanna, which means, save us, God. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, which is coming into the world. They're singing this with all their might. And yet, in Psalm 118, it also tells us how God is going to bring his kingdom. Behold, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, God is going to work in a way where rejection comes first and then glory. Meekness and then majesty. Weakness, seemingly, and then power. But in that order, and only in that order. This is a common pattern. God works through things that we think he would never work through. And in ways we think he would never work. Mysterious are the ways of God. Amen? Very mysterious. And there's an important lesson for every one of us in this when it comes to judgment. Because you and I, when we go to judge things, 
such as God, such as Jesus, such as anything else that we judge in life, tend to only judge by outward appearance. Isn't that right? Things that look impressive, we're impressed. No more questions asked. Give me some of that. It looks great. It glitters. It must be gold. If, however, things look very weak and miserable and sad and small, we think, no questions asked. I don't need that. Why would I want that? It can't be gold. And yet God is consistently throughout the story of the Bible, including here, showing us, if that's the way you're going to go about life, you're never going to see my work in your life. You're never going to get into this relationship with me that I'm sending Jesus to bring because this king enters in in a humble manner. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus now is exalted on high. He's got a crown. He's on no donkey anymore. The Bible says when he comes next, he's coming on a white horse to kick tail, which is the technical term for what we read about in Revelation, kick tail. That's what he does, right? He comes in to use the power of his word to overthrow every single enemy. He's riding on a white horse. Wow. King of kings and Lord of lords is written on his thigh, it says. Beautiful picture. And yet, listen, do we see that this morning? Is that the way Jesus reveals himself right now to us? Is that the way he comes into your life to change you and to forgive you? No, it's actually more like the donkey than the white horse. The white horse comes later. Now the Bible says, listen to this. This is from uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and a little bit of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Greeks seek wisdom. Jews seek signs. He's speaking about the people of his day. He says, all the people of the world, Jews and Greeks, are seeking things that look good, that are impressive outwardly. And yet, he says, God saves his people through the foolishness of preaching. Here's God's idea for spreading the good news of the king today. Let's send that raggedy old guy up there in front of them talking about me Sunday by Sunday. He's my donkey that I'm going to ride into their hearts. That's me. I'm the donkey. You get it? But don't judge the book by its cover. Because by a power that's not contained in me or in any other preacher or in any other person at all, by a power that only comes from God, God comes in the cover of just a simple word, a simple message, to proclaim a king who is able to not only judge you, but transform and save your life. If you'll lay aside your desire to only have what glitters, if you'll look past the outward appearance, which seems very weak, you will find a power that you could never imagine or never gain in any other way. That was what Jerusalem was receiving that day. The little kids knew it, but other people didn't know it. In fact, we were told that when the religious leaders looked at what Jesus was doing and what the children were doing, they were angry. Shut up, they say. Make the children stop. Doesn't say this in Mark, but in Matthew, what does Jesus say to the leaders? Well, if they stop, I'll make the rocks cry out. In other words, they know what y'all all ought to know. It's just y'all are looking for things that glitter. And I'm coming in a very weak way. Now, let's, let's listen to what he, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I didn't finish my quote. 
This is an important part. Why would God save people through the foolishness of preaching? Why would Jesus ride in a donkey into your heart and into Jerusalem? Here's why. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. The treasure of the gospel is carried in jars of clay so that you may know the surpassing power does not belong to us but to God. God speaks through donkeys so that we would know when we are saved by Jesus, it wasn't because of that donkey that I was saved. It was because of the Jesus that donkey was carrying. Amen? This is the genius of Christianity, the genius of the gospel. We, we tend to forget this, and, and we become a people that, that are just as well as the world around us. We're just as enamored by things that glitter, but we shouldn't be. As Christians, we should be completely, completely free of that kind of slavery to outward appearance and should learn from God how to look upon the inward reality of a thing. That's the first thing. That's the way Jesus enters in. But let's look at how he judges. And this is very related because Jesus, as well, he's, he's encouraging us to judge by the inward reality, not the outward appearance. And he shows himself to be a judge of the inward reality. Uh, when you want to know what's going on inside, what do you do? You, you either have to cut it open. Or you have to have some special kind of scan, right? A PET scan, an x-ray, a CAT scan. Or When you do those kinds of scans, you see not just the outward appearance, you see what's really going on underneath the surface. What a blessing that is, right? Now, I do not have a spiritual x-ray machine. Obviously. And I don't want one. I don't know what I would do with it, the information if I had it, about your heart and mine, right? I, I don't even know what I would do with it. But guess what? Jesus has one. And when Jesus looks at the church, when he looks at us as his people, when he looks at the world, and he's evaluating where we are, he's not just looking at how things look only. He's looking at the heart. There are two stories in verses 12 through uh, 21 that are enfolded in each other. The Bible scholars have a very technical name for this in Mark. They call it a sandwich. Technical name. A Markin sandwich is what they call it. Because it's all throughout the Gospel of Mark where he has two stories told within each other. Uh, two pieces of bread and meat in the middle. So look there at verse 12. He talks first about the first piece of bread is the story of the cursing of the fig tree. And then he goes into the cleansing of the temple. That's the meat. And then at the end, he goes back in verse 20, back to the fig tree to wrap up that story. That's the other piece of bread. That's a Mark and sandwich. And the reason why Mark uses that technique of writing is to illustrate for us the inner meaning of the story in the middle that is a little bit confusing. So it's confusing that Jesus would come to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and start throwing things. Right? Uh, no one would predict that. No one would think, okay, what would, what would happen if Jesus came to church? Oh, I think he would throw chairs. Would you think that? Probably not. And so we need some extra explanation of why in the world Jesus would do such a thing. And the fig tree cursing gives us that explanation. Let's look at the illustration. It says, verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, which is the little city where they were staying, he was hungry. 
and seeing in the distance, so he's looking from afar, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now, a fig tree, if you know anything about them, has very large leaves. And the leaves get more abundant and more large as the season goes. So fig tree, figs normally ripen in June or July. Jesus is at this time entering Jerusalem in April. Remember, this is the last week of his life, Easter. It's April, way too early for figs, which Mark tells us. And yet, by appearances, a fig tree that has many big leaves ought to be a fig tree that has fruit on it. Because that's the way it works. The, the riper the fruit gets, the more abundant the leaves get. And from a distance, you can't really see if it has fruit on it or not. Because figs are not like oranges. They're not a big color contrast with the tree. Instead, the figs are dark green and dark purple. And so against the tree, it's like camouflage. You, you can't tell if it has fruit or not until you get close to it. And so it says, Jesus was at a distance and saw the great abundance of wonderful green leaves. And he thought, wow, well, it, it, you know, it has been raining more this year. It has been a warmer than usual spring. Maybe this tree already has fruit on it a few months early. But look what it says. When he came to it, when he came close, he found nothing but leaves, no figs at all. And so he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, which we learn later, actually withers the tree. The next day they come by it and there's no leaves on it at all. There's nothing on it. It's so dead that they could tell that the roots themselves were zapped as if somebody had poured a big old container of Roundup on it. That story explains why Jesus cleansed the temple. It tells us in verse 11, Jesus came to the temple and he looked around at everything. This was not because Jesus had never been to the temple. He'd been every year of his life multiple times since he was a child. He wasn't a tourist looking around, oh wow, look at all this, I've never seen it before. He was there looking to judge looking to see what was going on in his father's house. And it tells us there in verse 15 that when he came, he was incensed, he was angry, and he began to turn over tables and cast out people who were exchanging money, people who were selling pigeons. He, he got it to where he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He stopped all activity. And then he says... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That, that's quoting from Isaiah. But then quoting from Jeremiah, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it says they were afraid of him. They were astonished at him. And some people even wanted to kill him. Do you see the connection in the sandwich? Sometimes... In our lives, we look very good far off. But not so good close up. Sometimes we look very good outwardly. Not so good inwardly. Jesus Christ, because he's our creator... Because he's our sustainer, is hungry for fruit from our lives. Not that he lacks anything, 
Not that he needs us to feed him, but he's hungry because he designed us to glorify and enjoy him, and he expects that to happen. And when he comes to the temple, when he comes to church, he was looking to be satisfied with the fruit of the enjoyment of God, the fruit of the glory of God that would fill the outer court. This whole outer court was huge around the middle sanctuary, and it was a place that was supposed to be bare and empty so that as many people as possible could fit in it, so that they could stand and pray before God, so that Jews and Gentiles and men and women and boys and girls could all together come and sing the Psalms and pray. And yet, what, they, what had they done? They had filled that court with their own stuff, stuff that God never told them to bring in there. They were exchanging money so that people could take their secular currency and exchange it for temple shekels. They were selling sacrificial animals for people who forgot to bring them or were too poor to bring them. In their mind, I'm sure they thought they had good intentions. We're just making church better. We're serving God. We're helping people worship. And yet Jesus was not happy because he, he found, yes, the appearance of religious activity, the leaves, but when he got closer... When he looked into the heart, as he always does, he saw emptiness. People were not really there for God. People weren't really trying to encounter God there. They were just going through the motions and doing whatever it is they wanted to do, whatever they saw fit to do for their own religious and spiritual kicks. Now, it's so easy for us to point fingers, to cast stones at all these wicked religious leaders in Jesus' day. But how true is it that we too can come to church for every reason except the Lord God? How true is it that the church can commercialize itself, commercialize its worship, commercialize its sermons, commercialize its music, This is bad. This is not what Jesus wants. Uh, it makes it look like, wow. I mean, I'm sure people in Jesus' day were like, the Israel has never been greater. Look at how much religious activity. It's, it's just so much hustle and bustle. And you can go to some churches, and maybe you can go to churches all the time, and, and it looks like, wow, these people really are into it. Look at it. Look how crazy. Look how wild. Look at how... How amazing they appear. And yet Jesus is looking for something far deeper. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Self-control. You know what I'm listing there? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's looking for. That's what he's hungry to taste from us. And yet we come and sometimes that's far, far, far from our hearts. And that's the reason why Jesus, if he comes to church turning over tables, that's the reason why he's doing it. Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because he was just hungry and had turned hangry. Don't think of Jesus that way. Don't think of him as being petty enough that he would curse a fig tree just because he was super hungry and annoyed that it wasn't the season for figs. He knew all that. He was trying to make a point, right? A point that they would never forget. If you Pretend to be religious, but you don't have the spiritual life within you, you will be cursed. You will be withered to the, to the root. 
there will be no recovery. Instead, seek the spiritual life that he seeks. Seek the fruit inwardly that he seeks. Do what he has told you to do for the reasons that he's told you to do it. Clear out the temple courts of all that junk and just let it be you and God and us and God. Which leads us to our last thing. How does the king save? Because here we see not just a king judging, but a king saving. Uh, In fact, the whole reason why he is making such a dramatic point of this is he wants people to wake up. He he wants the disciples, he wants the other Jews and, and those who are at the temple to see God is not happy and God wants to change you. And so in verses 22 to 26, if you'll look at that, when the disciples are walking back into Jerusalem the next day, they've seen Jesus overturn the tables, they've seen him curse the fig tree, they notice that same tree by the roadside and it is completely dead, like we said, like somebody had sprayed Roundup on it. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, I think Peter, we've got to give him some credit. I think he's starting to put two and two together. I don't think it's just, wow, it actually worked, Jesus. Cool trick. No, I think it's Jesus. Whoa. I think I see it now. It's withered all the way down to the bone. It'll never live again. There's no more hope for it except a miracle. Is that really what you're saying about us? Jesus, is that what you're saying about the temple and about all the religious people that I've always known my whole life, that without the power and work of God, they're dead? And Jesus says, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. He says, look at it, have faith in God. And here we're right back to it, right? We're right back to the reason why God would work powerful things through seemingly weak means. So that instead of having faith in yourself, you might have faith in God. Jesus clears the temple, curses the fig tree, so that we would see. If we come to God on our own terms, if we come to God on our own strength, we'll never measure up. It will not happen. We are like dead branches. Dry bones. And yet, if we have faith in God, if we look to God to give us the life that we don't have in ourselves, there's hope. Jesus says, have faith in God. If you, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, if your faith and confidence is warmly and fully in God, your prayer life is going to be so much more than just robotic, outward things. It's going to be so much than just selfish demands. You're going to be in sync with God. So that as soon as you ask, he's going to answer. Let's not get it twisted. These uh, words where it says, whoever believes what he will receive from the Lord and asks will get it. Uh, Jesus is not teaching some kind of blank check, uh, name it, claim it. Uh, You know, if I want a Corvette bad enough, God will give it to me. Uh, Those kind of ideas are very ridiculous. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Because they lower God down to our level. It's as if prayer is some kind of rubbing the bottle and trying to get the genie to come out. Uh, God is not a genie. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Instead, he's saying, if you trust the power of God, I will change you. I will make you so at one with me that your prayer life will be really powerful because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. 
I will make you righteous. I will stand you in my presence so that your asking will be quickly responded by my answering, just like a father responding to the requests of his children. I will give you a relationship with God. That's what he's, that's what he's offering. A relationship. All that I have will be yours. All that you have will be mine. And then when you have that relationship, see, that's always what Jesus is offering, a real covenant relationship between you and God. No more, no less. He is not offering you just simply some religious kicks. He's not offering you a side dish of holiness to the main course of life. He's offering you his whole self for your whole self, connected together forever. Covenant marriage. He says when that happens, it'll transform the way you come to worship. The temple of God will become what God intended it to become. You won't need all that commercialization. You won't need all those distractions. Why? Because you'll be there for him. That's what it says in verse 25. When you stand praying. Two things. Notice all the, all the you words in this whole section are plural yous, like y'all. When y'all stand praying, when y'all ask in faith, y'all will receive from the Lord what y'all have asked. In other words, he's speaking to the whole community. The whole church. And he says, when y'all come together to stand praying, to stand to pray all throughout the Gospels and the Old Testament, was the posture that the people of God took in prayer at the temple, at the synagogue, and in the early church. They stood to pray. And so to say, when you stand praying, is almost like saying, when you come to church to pray, when you come to church to worship, here's the way it will be when you have a relationship with God. You will forgive. Now, that's something you can't fake, and that's something you can't commercialize. The pure reception of God's forgiveness can't be commercialized or faked, and the pure giving of that forgiveness to those who've wronged you can't be commercialized or faked. It is real, or it's not at all. God says, when you have, through Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, when he touches your withered life, and causes the sap to flow again so that the leaves and the fruit come forth. Then you'll come to church in a different way. You'll come with a heart that's fruitful. You'll forgive. And in forgiving, you'll experience more of the taste of what it is to have God forgive you. And by tasting that more, you'll be more willing to forgive others. And then you'll know more of his forgiveness. What a wonderful ecosystem of love and forgiveness God creates. When he touches the heart. I love it. When we stand before Jesus the judge. It's sobering. Even Bobby Flay trembles. And so should you and I. Because he sees the heart. And yet, he's also the one who reaches out a healing hand to touch the heart. Have faith in God. That's the main point, right? Believe in Him. Don't trust in your own goodness. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Don't trust in your own power. Look to Him. He rides on a donkey, but He's great. He rules the world. And He's able to make you to stand before Him with fruit.
not just leaves. Amen.